God's Word, I would love for you to turn to the book of 1 Timothy as we proceed into that book. Evil. Evil is the perpetual enemy that we face. Um, it's the enemy of God and the enemy of truth. Yes, I know, an angel of God is the one who rebelled against him to bring evil to earth. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. So if you don't know him, his name is Satan or the devil. And uh, he's very much on the prowl. But God allowed this angel to fall to demonstrate his power and his love and his compassion for humanity. He wanted to demonstrate in his glory the power of his salvation. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We have a fight to fight. As followers of Jesus Christ, we have a fight. We're in a battle. And Paul's going to tell us kind of how to do that. Paul the Apostle, here in this letter to, first, to Timothy, 1 Timothy we call it, in this letter he was writing to Timothy, who is the pastor of Ephesus, the Ephesus church, to help him in his ministry. And in this thing, Paul conveys the letter. In this passage today, Paul conveys to Timothy how crucial, how crucial his calling to the gospel ministry and to the defense of the church is. How crucial it is. And it prevents people from coming in and wrecking people's faith. And that's what he tells him to, to watch out for. So let's, let's read this. Only three verses today, which doesn't mean it's going to be a short sermon, but... Follow along as I read, Timothy, my son, I am giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word and so much truth in it. So many things for us to ponder, meditate on, think about, and apply in our own hearts. And may this morning, this passage itself bring to light in our own lives things we need to shore up, things we need to bolster, things we need to repair even, so that we have faith and a good conscience to fight the good fight. Show us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So the text here kind of tells us that Paul continues his charge, his instructions to, to Timothy about the work to be done in Ephesus. There is work to be done at the church and what will be required. So the sermon idea we want to kind of get this morning from this is that when fighting the spiritual forces of evil, God employs several means by which we do that. He employs spiritual measures to protect his church. What does God use to aid his church during spiritual attacks? Well, he employs certain means. He employs certain things in us and through us and even from him to fight this fight, this fight of faith. First of all, he gives you shepherds. He gives the church shepherds. Shepherds equipped for war. Verses 18 and 19. Let me read those again. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you so that... By recalling them, you may fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and have shipwrecked their faith. Timothy, like I said, is the pastor at Ephesus. Paul put him there and installed him there. And Paul affectionately calls him a son. Now, Paul is not his father. 
His father was Greek. His father's passed away even, I think, before Paul met Timothy in uh, Acts chapter 16. You can see that there. But I think it's because of their history together. He saw Timothy come to faith in Jesus Christ. He saw Timothy grow. He has used Timothy immensely. He's sent him places. He's gone in advance in the head of, ahead of Paul. Paul sent him back to places. Paul has left him at places. And now he's put him at Ephesus. So he uses his name here. He basically calls his name to get his attention, to kind of help him focus on what Paul's about to say. You know, we, we do that. We say, hey, so-and-so, we, we want them to pay attention to what we're saying. And so he's emphasizing how crucial the ministry is he has here at Ephesus. And so Paul gave him the charge that he talks about, or the instruction as the word is used here, in verses 3 through 5 of the first chapter. He gives him the instructions he wants him to do, to stay at Ephesus, to fight, to do these things, and, and employ these things, and teach with the goal of love. Because Timothy has been proclaimed to be a pastor, it's, you know, today we're gonna, tonight we're going to ordain Jeremy, and now the call is more internal. But back then, in the first century, Paul was looking for people to be called to the ministry. And then God was actually speaking through people to, to call people. It was kind of interesting. Timothy's one of them. When Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch and they were, they were there teaching for about a year, then all of a sudden the church decides and hears from God's voice to send Paul and Barnabas out. So... There was a different way of calling, and that's what he's talking about here in these prophecies. That so, It's really proclamations. That word can be used either way, prophecies or proclamations. But he knows that he's been placed in this position and given this gift. And so the instruction and the prophecies together, the instruction Paul has given and the fact that he's been proclaimed to be a pastor, these together fuel the ministry that Timothy's going to be doing there in Ephesus to fight the good fight of faith. Paul knows that Timothy's going to need to teach. He's going to need to implement some measures. He's going to need to correct people in Ephesus on truth. Truth is always under attack. I'm serious. Real truth, okay? Let's don't get the world's idea of truth. Truth is always under attack. And Timothy is right there at Ephesus, put there by God, to face the challenges of false doctrine and heresy that's going on in that church. That's fighting the good fight. But let's, let's stop a second and define what the good fight is. Because so, so many times we fight, and it's not always for the good fight. It's sometimes for the bad stuff. Or sometimes we think it's good, but it's really not good. But the good fight, the good fight is the most honorable conflict in the universe. The most honorable conflict to be involved in in the entire universe. The ultimate conflict of right versus evil. Notice I didn't say wrong. Right. Notice I didn't say good or bad. It's right. It's truth. And this started when Satan entered the world at the Garden of Eden. He entered the created world. And that started the, the conflict. And Satan's hatred of God, <clears throat> and let me be clear, Satan hates God, okay? Satan's hatred of God has impacted the souls of humanity ever since and for eternity. When he tempted Adam and Eve and they sinned, it set us on a path of complete Eternal destruction. It's a war. It's a war and we're all involved in it. You can't ignore it. You may think you're ignoring it. You may think you're getting out of it. You may think you're avoiding it. But it's, it's everywhere. And someday everybody will know that they were involved and they failed to get engaged. It's a, it's a war and everyone's involved. And, and whether you know it or not, even, every day warfare is happening out there. 
every day. A spiritual conflict is going on. You know, we, we read about Ukraine and we read about Sudan, but we're not there. Right here, this conflict, you're there, no matter where you are. Because some of the conflict goes on right in here. So even if you're alone on a desert island, if you're cast away like Tom Hanks, you, you're, alone, you're not completely out of the fight. It's still going on in here. So that's the reason why Paul has given Timothy such instruction. And God uses people to fight for truth. We know God's truth. We know his absolute truth. We know what he stands for. But we also know that he also uses people. That's what he wants to use us for, to fight for truth. And he uses the people with a sincere faith and a good conscience. A sincere faith and a good conscience. Um, and I want to understand what Paul means here because he says these will keep us from wrecking our faith. So what is, what is a good faith? What is a faith, a sincere faith? Well, it's, it's the basic the thing is, is it's trust. It's trust. Trust in the truth of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's talking about here. Trust in the truth of Jesus Christ. Trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, as Lord, as the mighty victor who conquered death and sin. That's the faith we're talking about. You're not clinging to anything else. You're not hanging on to anything else. You're not doing anything else or believing anything else to get you to heaven but Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. Complete trust of the gospel for the forgiveness of sin and eternal life is where the fight against evil begins. That's where it begins. When we made a decision to follow Christ, when we made a decision to trust his death, burial, and resurrection for the salvation of our soul, for our sins, we, we entered the conflict on the, on the side of right at that point. We were already involved, but we didn't know how bad we were involved. Complete trust of the gospel for the forgiveness of sin and eternal life. That's where the fight begins, and it's got to start there. Everything else we would do if we didn't do it from faith is useless. It's a clanging symbol, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. It, it doesn't work right because it doesn't involve the love that comes from the gospel. What's a good conscience? Well, <laughs> I find this hard to, to define sometimes. People don't even know what a conscience really is. Matter of fact, in Madagascar, when we were there for, on our mission trip, there's not even a word in the Malagasy language for conscience. It took my interpreter 15 minutes to explain to these pastors what a conscience was. And so it was, it was very interesting. But a conscience, what is a conscience? A conscience is a God-given commodity that regulates human moral behavior. It's a gift from God. The conscience really is. When it's properly informed, that's the, that's the part where we play. Our conscience is really good and, and a useful gift from God if it's properly informed. You know, our conscience is to the soul what pain is to the body. Pain tells us we need to take an Advil. Or pain tells us we may need to go to see the doctor. Or pain tells me we may need a sling. You know, pain tells us those things for our body. Our conscience talks to our soul and tells us we were wrong or we need to correct something. It offers a self-evaluation of our behavior. And which conforms to the standard that's in our conscience. See, your conscience has got to have a standard. Let's see, that's what the world is trying to ignore is the fact that their, their conscience has, a has to have a standard. They're making up their own standard. But I notice that when they argue with you about different things, they seem to change what their standard is. But that's another whole sermon. A good conscience is only one built on the righteousness of God in Christ in accordance with God's word. That's what a good conscience is. A good conscience is only built 
on the righteousness of God in accordance with God's word through Christ Jesus. That's where our conscience needs to get its information from. Not the world, not some ideologies, not even some preachers out there. That's not where our conscience needs to get informed. It needs to get informed right here. These two tools, faith and a good conscience, those are the tools we fight with. That's fighting the good fight. And they will protect the ship, the ship of our faith from running aground. This is the second half of verse 19. Paul point, Paul's point is that when sincere faith and right conscience are compromised, when, when your good conscience and your faith has been allowed to get stale or get uninformed, the breaking apart of your faith begins. There's a term out there today that's being used by a lot of, well, I should say a lot of people who think, thought they were Christians but now are saying they're not. I don't know. We, we're going to have to let God sort that out. But they use a term called deconstructing their faith. Now, they're deconstructing their faith because they don't know what their faith is supposed to be based on. And that's a breaking apart of the faith. That is a shipwrecking. That word in the Greek, shipwreck, actually literally means breaking apart piece by piece. Breaking apart piece by piece. It's, it's, their, it's the ship coming apart at the seams. It's not sinking just sinking. It is breaking apart. There's the story of Paul where he gets on a, he's on a ship headed to Rome and he, they run aground in uh, Malta on some sandbar and the waves, the storm has come, come and the waves are battering the stern of the ship and breaking it apart. It's disintegrating underneath our feet. That's what he's talking about here. It's dissecting the ship. It's eroding the ship. It is grinding it to rubble. And that's what happens when we let our faith get stale and our conscience get seared or misguided. We lose the standard. Paul doesn't want the church to have that happen. They don't want, he doesn't want their faith to be disassembled or deconstructed. So he's telling Timothy, your faith and your good conscience is what's going to help get, keep your church away and saved from the heresies and the false doctrines that are coming. And Paul's going to talk about that as we get deeper into 1 Timothy. Fighting the good fight of faith by faith, fighting the good fight by faith and a good conscience is against the evil that seeks to dismantle our faith for Christ. That's what we're fighting against, the evil that's out there. God gave pastors, another word is shepherds, specifically to the church to aid in those conflicts. But, but it's just not on our soul. It's not only up to us. But we, we're going to lead the fight. Kind of, I kind of was thinking about this in terms of fighting the good fight and I got to thinking about how, you know, combat time. There's more people out there been faced with combat than probably in my younger years. They've had combat time against an enemy. You know, they fought in Iraq. They fought in Afghanistan. I had a desert storm sortie in combat. There's several of us that have been in Vietnam, Korea. There's all kinds of stuff that went on like that. But we fought one enemy that we knew was there. Pretty much, maybe you fought in two wars. Maybe you fought two different enemies. But you're not fighting in the Ukraine right now. You're not fighting in Sudan or wherever else there's conflict right now. But this war that Paul's talking about is everywhere. Everywhere at all times. The enemy will attack you the minute you walk out this door today. He'll, he'll put some thought, give you some thought, distract you some way. This one is not avoidable. And you don't have to be drafted to be forced to participate in it. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're already 
engaged in it. All people are swept into this at some point. And the other thing we need to realize when we're fighting this fight, that we're not fighting people. Jesus didn't fight people. Jesus fought the wrong ideas. He fought untruth. He fought evil ideas. We're not fighting people. Evil is the enemy. Evil is the enemy. The rejection of truth, the rejection of all the truth of Scripture is our foe. That's who we're battling against. We've got to remember that. Ephesians 6, 12, Paul's writing to this church before, before he writes this book, he wrote to this church in Ephesus. He had spent three years there teaching them. But he wrote to them, he says, in Ephesians 6, 12, he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. So, he says, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. See, we're fighting the devil. And he's not really a person, per se. He's not people here on planet Earth. We're fighting the devil. He tells the Ephesus church this. Already he's told them this. And now he's sending instructions to the pastor. you got to keep fighting. The schemes are out there. Faith and a good conscience are the equipment he gives us to fight this fight. Faith and a good conscience. So how should we approach the lost and the misguided believer when they're tearing down truth? Well, we don't need to label them. We don't need to label them. We don't need to call them the enemy. We don't need to call them whatever we, we come up with. There's all kinds of labels out there. Now, they're going to label us. Oh, yeah. They got some good names for us. For those of us who are following Jesus Christ, who are going against their ideologies, yeah, they got names for us, but we don't need to label them. We don't need to condemn them. We don't need to slander them. Let's talk about the issue, not them. Because a lot of them don't know the truth yet. They're living, they're living in a, a, an evil world. They're living in the evil standard. They're living in whatever their mind came up with. You go to Romans 1, you read, a, Paul talks about this in, in detail. They're just following whatever comes to mind. They don't know the truth. So we need to present our faith with truth, but with love, kindness. When they get upset, we don't. We walk away if we need to. We tell them, hey, I'm sorry. We'll talk, we'll, we'll talk about this later if you want. But we, we need to tell the world about the forgiveness of sin that's in Jesus Christ and the adoption into God's family that comes by that. That's our truth. That's the standard we need to live by. And that's what we need to push on them or push to them. I don't say push on them, push to them. Because, man, you can get bogged down in the details of some of these conflicts today. Ooh, they'll, they'll, they'll bog you down if you try to answer every issue. The blood of Jesus Christ is what we're about. You may find yourself in fights and scraps over a myriad of issues. <laughs> there are so many. And, and there's so many facets to one particular, in any particular issue. But I want us to remember this morning that only one matters. Only one issue matters. Only one thing that the church of Jesus Christ should be focused on. The only truly good fight is the one where Jesus is lifted up. 
the gospel is proclaimed and the church loves people. That's the only one that matters. That's the only fight that we should be. No other fight matters except the one to save souls. Now, we don't save, but we push that information to them. We give them the truth. Remember, I've said it before. There's only two things that last forever. The word of God and the souls of men. The word of God, which tells us how to fight. The souls of humanity who need the truth of Jesus Christ. That's what the struggle is about. It is a fight to the eternal death, not just physical death of lost souls. And each and every believer is challenged and called to engage. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you need to be engaged in this. You don't have to be on Twitter. You don't have to be on Instagram, Snapchat, or whatever else it is. You don't have to be on any of that to engage in this. Just walk across your yard to your back fence and talk to your neighbor. Walk across the street. Engage people that may be struggling. Find a way to talk to them about Jesus Christ. With our gifts and our treasures, we can fight to make sure all humanity hears the message of Jesus Christ. That's why we take up an offering for North American missions. That's why we take up one for international missions. That's why we engage in that, because we want that message out. We may use physical needs to help get the message to them, but by trust we fight no matter what we face. This is the one thing we've got to remember. No matter what's going on around us, no matter what the government may be doing, we trust and we fight no matter what we face. Nothing should ever derail us from that. The Chinese church has been doing it for years, decades, fighting the good fight underground. Someday we may have to. You never know. By trust, we fight. No matter what we get attacked by, we hold on to Jesus Christ who has, has us in his hand. Faith that never allows any danger to compromise it. Faith in Jesus that never allows anything that comes at us to compromise our faith. We're willing to storm hell with a water pistol or go into a cave with just a match. That's what kind of faith he's talking about here. Faith that acts when there's wrongs being done. We need a conscience that is aware of our own sin. I mean, that's one thing we, we really got to be careful with as a church is, you know, those in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Be aware of your own sin. This is another reason why we don't condemn and we don't judge. We just present the truth. We don't have to convince them they're wrong. Let God and the Holy Spirit do that. A conscience that's aware of our own sin and seeks to help others see Jesus for their eternal soul. And we, we can face the world's accusations when we have a good conscience. When you have a good conscience, you don't have to worry about what they say about you. If your, your conscience is valued and, and you're grounding it in Jesus Christ and God's word, you don't have to worry what the, about what the world, rest of the world's saying about us. Just keep telling them the truth. And the one thing you need to remember is we're all equipped for this as believers. The Holy Spirit lives in us. The power of God that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside us, Paul says. We have that power, so we need to run to the battle. We need to run the race set before us and not shrink back with faith and a good conscience. So Paul is encouraging Timothy to employ these weapons against evil. But, point number two, sometimes God uses another weapon. Another weapon. Satan allowed to discipline. Verse 20. Listen to what Paul says here. 
among them, among those who are distorting the truth, among them who are wrecking their faith, among them who are not living in a good conscience with a good faith, are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. It's one of the saddest verses in Scripture in my mind. Really sad. These two men who were connected to the church at Ephesus at some point professed faith in Christ, probably even been baptized, are now distorting the truth, and Paul has had to disfellowship them for heresy. Now let me give you a little background or a little history on these guys. Hymenaeus, he, uh, he only appears here and in 2 Timothy 2. And in 2 Timothy 2, he's paired up with another guy named Philetus, and they deny the truth. Matter of fact, here's what they're saying. They're saying that the resurrection has already happened, taking place, meaning our bodily resurrection that happens when Jesus returns. And they are, which is the worst part here, they are ruining the faith of some. That's what Paul really cares about. That faith we talked about a minute ago, Paul wants that to be a strong faith. And when people start ruining the faith of some, the faith in Jesus Christ, that gets on his nerves. <laughs> so, from our best guess, Hymenaeus never returned to the church. Um, he sought to infect people, and Paul even uses a word like infection. He uses the word gangrene. He even lets them infect. They be, he begins to affect people like that. And so, at least in 2 Timothy, was re, which was written maybe 10 years after this letter was written, Hymenaeus is still off the rails. And then Alexander... Who's this guy? Well, you know what? His name appears five times in the New Testament. Two of those times, this is not the guy. But in Acts 19.33, it talks about a, a riot that happened in Ephesus over what Paul was teaching. And Alexander is one of the ones who kind of spearheads that uh, riot. That may be the same guy. We're not 100% sure. But here and in 2 Timothy 4, Alexander is a coppersmith. This is what the riot was about. The, the silversmiths and coppersmiths got together and said, their union got together and said, you're ruining our business by telling people there's another God. We have the God of, of Artemis' temple here in Ephesus, and that's our God, and we're making little idols to it, and so that's their business. Idols were their business. Paul's ruining that because he's telling them that there's only one God, and you don't need an idol for it. You don't need a little trinket for it. So he's ruining their business. So Alexander, a coppersmith, Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, says he's done much damage. Paul makes that assessment in 2 Timothy 4. The harm most likely was to Paul. I think probably Alexander turned him into the authorities, which eventually went, winds up getting Paul arrested the second time and put in prison and eventually killed. But he also is disputing Paul's message. He's denying what Paul's saying. He's saying what Paul said isn't true. And so... That's another thing that seems to agitate Paul. So he seems to never return to the church either. Alexander seems to be off the rails, and we don't know whatever happened. He was causing more problems than he was even here in 1 Timothy. So Paul disciplined them by delivering them over to Satan. What does that mean? I mean, we've got probably some, some wrong ideas about how Satan works and, you know, I'm going, to, I'm going to give you a little lesson on God's use of the devil. And all of this is supported by Scripture. I'm not going to give you all the references. If you want to know them, you can come talk to me afterwards. But 
God allows Satan, and Satan is one of his, one of his fallen angels. He's a fallen angel. He leads a rebellion in heaven, somewhere between creation starting and the snake in the garden. Somewhere in there, there's a rebellion in heaven, in God's presence. And after that, God no longer gives angels to make choices, <laughs> gives them the, free, the freedom and the ability to make choices. But God uses Satan to afflict people at God's discretion. It's God's discretion. Satan doesn't get to do anything without God's approval. And most of the time when we think we're being attacked by Satan, it's probably our own sinful nature rising up in us or we want something we're not supposed to have or we want something we can't have. But God allows this. And it's for his glory. You look at Job. Job's a great example of what Satan has to go through to get at somebody. He had to ask permission twice before he could do what he did to Job. He took everything away from him materially and family-wise. Then he took his health away but didn't kill him. But God allowed this. And then we're going, oh, really? It just doesn't work with my theology of God. Well... God's glory is the number one and supreme thing. And God gave Job a faith, a faith that would survive the worst. The worst. To lose your, the only person he did lose in his family was his wife. I think there might have been some time where he thought, he wished he had lost his wife. She was not helping him at all. She was not on his side. But, but Jesus really is our best example Go to Matthew chapter 4. You see Jesus, he is, he is not just wandering around in the desert on his own. He was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, which is God. God sent Jesus out into the wilderness to face Satan, to, to be tempted, to be tempted by Satan. He was tempted in every way, Hebrews 4.15 tells us. It was, we see the three big ones. I think all three of those cover all sins that we could possibly face. Chuck Colson preached a sermon on that years and years ago. So I think God puts us in positions where we could be tempted, where temptation could come. So I have to make a correction to the time-honored women's class that I spoke to several years ago and told them in the Lord's Prayer when it says, lead us not into temptation, well, one commentator said it was a trial. It meant the same word was used for trials, and it is. But I believe we're asking God not to lead us into temptation. I think it's a valid prayer that we need to pray that. That temptation be prevented. That God not lead us into those situations like he did Jesus. This is after Jesus had faced temptation. So God uses Satan. Satan but Satan, let's look at his character. Okay, He's a destroyer. He wants to destroy everything. I mean, he wants to burn the entire world down around him. He doesn't care. He doesn't care at all. He's a destroyer. He's a tormentor. He's wanting to wreak havoc on anything. He wants to wreck anything, whether it's good or bad. He'll even wreck evil things to try to make someone else more evil. I mean, he doesn't care. And one thing we have to realize as Christians, sometimes we're afraid that we're giving too much attention to, to the devil. He doesn't care about your recognition. He really doesn't. He doesn't care whether you recognize that he's causing the problems or not. He doesn't care. He doesn't want your recognition. He wants your destruction. He wants you to suffer. 
And especially as believers, he wants us to be miserable in our salvation. He wants to just wallow in our self-pity. That's what he wants. So he will do whatever God, remember, God allows him to do. And God uses Satan's destructive ways to discipline us, to punish us, and sometimes to destroy us when it benefits God's kingdom. Now, God's benefit, he's always seeking his own glory, and his glory is always perfect and good. He's not narcissistic. He's not egotistical. That's just God, and he gets to be God, and we let him do that. So God uses these things to benefit his kingdom. Now, when you go back to verse 20 now, and you understand, Paul did not literally hand two guys over to Satan. Paul didn't have that kind of power. <laughs> he, he, and he would have never let you think that. He, he had decided, this is what Paul had decided, he had stopped trying to correct them. There reaches a point where you just can't get through to some people. So he stopped trying to correct their heresies, their disruptive acts, their, their not pursuing the truth. He put them out of the church body. He disfellowshipped with them, ex ex excommunicated them, basically put them out of the church, never declaring that they were lost, okay? That doesn't mean he declared them lost, but their behavior needed to be disciplined, as Matthew 18 tells us how to do that. And he did this so that in their isolation and in their oppression in the world, when they're away from the body of Christ, hopefully they might experience conviction and repentance. That's why he did it. That's why Paul would let God do that or ask God to do that. He would put them out of the church so that they would experience that kind of isolation. And Paul's aim, as should be ours every time we do something like church discipline, in any discipline situation, is repentance. It's the three R's, actually. Not reading, writing, and arithmetic, which are only one R. Repentance, restoration, and reconciliation. That is our goal every time. We're not looking to get even with anybody. We're not looking to, to, to get it over on someone. Our goal is always for Jesus to convict them and bring them back to the flock. Bring them back to the church to fight the good fight. That's our goal. That's always our goal. Repentance, restoration, and reconciliation. So Satan can be used to fight the good fight against evil. And he can use, be used by God's sovereign hand for his glory. So I know that may be a little shocking to you, but we don't need to be shocked, really. We let it happen to our children a lot of times. Don't touch that. They touch it. They get burned. They've learned. We want to try to prevent that. I remember back in the 80s, 70s, and 80s, there was this concept, I think it was 80s, maybe 90s, called tough love. Dr. Dobson and Focus on the Family talked about it. The idea was that when you get a teenager or some child that is pushing away your authority, breaking your boundaries and your rules in your home, that there's a point there where you let them go. You, you kick them out sometimes. You kick them out and let them survive on their own. I know a couple that did that with their teenage son, and uh, it worked. But it was tough love. It was hard. Now, you make arrangements that they got a mediator they can talk to, usually a friend of yours that they'll might come back to, so you can begin to get them back in the, in the family. But it's necessary sometimes to, to do that. 
And Paul did that with these two people, hoping for their salvation to be revealed. He also did this in Corinth. He wrote a letter to Corinth. Man, Corinth was like, mm, they were the Jerry Springer of churches, man alive. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul's talking to them because there was a man in the church, a member of the church, sleeping with his stepmom. Yes, yes, that's in the Bible, okay? It happened. And they were not doing anything about it. The church was kind of like almost glad that he was a member of the church because evidently he was wealthy or something. They thought his pocketbook was more important than his righteousness. But this is what Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians 5. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. This guy was unrepentant, and they had allowed him to stay. And so Paul's making it very clear. His heart's not right. He needs to repent. And God uses the tempter to teach us when we are too hard-headed to hear his voice, just like he did this guy. The good news is, in 2 Corinthians, this guy repented. He was let back in the church. He followed Christ. That's good news. So yes, it does work. It does work. Satan can be used for good. Now, I don't want you to become preoccupied with the devil. Okay, that's not what this sermon's about. Um, I don't want you going out there chasing him down. That would be distraction. That would be unhelpful for you. In Scripture, Jesus and Paul never tell us to chase down the devil, to go devil hunting or demon hunting. He never tells us to do that. Instead, always, the cure in our hearts for anything that goes awry is the gospel. The gospel. A.W. Tozer said, The devil is not afraid of sheep, but he is afraid of the shepherd. Stay close to the shepherd, and you won't have to worry about the devil. Get grounded in Jesus Christ instead, and, and, and Satan won't be able to touch you. At least spiritually, he won't be able to touch you. If you seek to live like Jesus, you'll never get a visit from Diablo. Okay, Fighting the good fight successfully and faithfully will always entail us being secure in Jesus. Fighting the good fight successfully and faithfully always involves being close and connected and submissive to Jesus. Close to the good shepherd. And when Jesus is your focus, when Jesus is your master... Your soul is safe in him. But Satan may still inflict some pain by little cuts in here and there. He may, God may use him to discipline you. You never know. Our commitment to obedience, though, and our daily use of spiritual disciplines, our love for God and others will keep us safe. It will. When you attach yourself to Jesus like a branch to a vine, when you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him like that, you don't have to worry about what the devil's going to do to you. Even if God allows him to go all Job on you, you'll have the faith to withstand those kind of tests. I know right now you're thinking, oh, I don't know if I could handle what Job handled. God will give you the faith if you'll stay close. Like Job said, even though he slay me, I will trust him. God gave him this faith and he'll do the same for us. And Why? Because Jesus died in our place. He took our penalty. We are safe. Jesus won the war. We're just fighting battles. 
We're fighting battles from a position of victory. Okay, this is, this is, this is v, VS day, victory over Satan. Okay, when, when, when he rose from the grave, it was a victory. But battles rage around us and will. They will constantly be battles around us until Jesus returns. Constantly. But you and I fight from the winner's circle. We're not trying to win the war. We're just trying to win the battles. In the end, it's finished. He won. We don't have to fight for victory. We're just fighting from it. So our battles, those battles, strengthen your faith. And brings God glory because the victory is won. So in this passage, Paul is preparing Timothy for what he's going to bring, present to him in the rest of the letter. If you've read 1 Timothy, there's a lot of things coming that, that Paul's going to instruct him on. But he's preparing Timothy for the battles and the conflicts. Not from what Paul says, but for Timothy having to actually enforce those things in the church. These things are on the horizon at Ephesus. But it is always a good fight. No matter what we're having to fight, it is always a, a good fight. And spiritual conflict is going to rage around us. Like I said, it's, it's every day, everywhere. Are you equipped to fight it? If you're a believer in Christ, you are. You've got the Holy Spirit inside you, I said before. And Jesus commanded us to follow him by being a disciple that makes disciples. That really is where the fight is for us. Making disciples that make more disciples to continue the replicating and duplicating of followers of Christ. If you want more purpose and meaning in your life, this is where you get it. Fighting the good fight. Start living out your faith in victory. Passing on what you know about Jesus Christ to others. Our faith is, is the chain that keeps us anchored in Christ and the gospel. And our conscience has always got to be based on Christ. These are the things that prevent shipwrecked faith. Okay? So let's have a time of prayer right now. If you want to come to the front and pray, great. But let's... Let's pray for our faith to be a fighting faith for the, the righteousness of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer for a few minutes, and I'll close us out.